Okay, let's just bow our hearts one more time as we come humbly before God's word together, shall we? Well, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it does separate between the fleshly and the spiritual. Just as a sword, Lord, dividing. Lord, may it do that this morning in our own lives. Lord, help us to understand the the carnal nature and the way that it would prevent us from growing spiritually. And the way that it would try to stop us growing deeper in our relationship with you. But Lord, help us also to understand that great work of grace that you are doing through sanctification in our lives by sending us apart. And Lord, we want you to continue. So this morning, Father, just open our eyes, challenge us. Lord, don't let us leave here as we came in. May we go this morning more excited and more in love with Jesus Christ than we were. And Father, may we hold on loosely, Lord, to the things of this world and holding on tightly to Jesus, we pray. We just give you this time this morning. Speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to carry on in our study through the Gospel of Mark, the good news that Mark presents to us. Now, in the last session, just as a reminder, we we kind of spent a little bit of time just looking at the person of John Mark, who John Mark was, uh, a little bit of uh, the things that Scripture reveals, and a few allusions possibly to uh, Mark appearing um, in uh, the gospel narratives at uh, different places. Uh, what we do know is that he became very much a disciple of Peter, uh, that Peter became a real inspiration to Mark, uh, and certainly they traveled together seemingly to Babylon, uh, and I think probably uh, looking at what we do know, that's the most likely location where certainly a lot of the, the early work of this gospel was done, as Mark had that opportunity to ask Peter questions. What was it like? What did Jesus say? Then what happened? And just like a, an, an excited school child, Mark just kind of scribbling down his notes, listening to Peter. You know, and again, Peter, this disciple who, as a disciple, as when Jesus was there with them, forever making mistakes, forever putting his foot in it, saying the wrong thing. And yet this was the Peter that at the Feast of Harvest, the day of Pentecost, stood up and preached one of the most incredible sermons ever preached. And 3,000 people give their lives to the Lord. You know, we don't want to raise any of these people, nor would they want us to, to kind of celebrity status. But you've got to appreciate for someone like Mark, looking at someone like Peter, there must have been a kind of sense of awe looking at this Peter who'd been with Jesus that had seen and witnessed these miracles firsthand. And Mark has that opportunity to say to, to Peter, so tell me, what was it like? We commented last week on the time of writing and clearly we know it had to be before 68 AD because we have copies of Mark's Gospel or portions of and commentaries of uh, found in Cave 7 in Qumran in the caves. So we know that these things were written within 30 years of the events themselves. And this is the account of the the good news that Mark has given the world. You know, sadly, we often use the word gospel, and it's the right word. It is what it it is, but it doesn't always convey to us what it really means. This is Mark wanting to give everybody in the world the good news about Jesus Christ. And really, he starts off by saying that Jesus Christ is the promised one. 
This is why he writes what he writes. He wants to tell people that finally there is a solution to the sin problem. That there is a saviour who's come to undo what happened in the Garden of Eden at the time of the fall. There is now a second Adam that has come along. We commented last time of the deliberate design that we see amongst the Gospels. How each of them presents a different facet of Jesus Christ, just as the the faces of the cherubim do. We see clear evidence of supernatural design in all these things. And then we started to look at Mark chapter 1. In the first 20 verses, we're going to recap a little bit of uh, the last few of those in a moment. But uh, what we want to do this morning is looking at the calling of the disciples. We'll spend a little bit of time on that, just looking at what uh, the circumstances surrounding Peter, Andrew, James and John. Just abandoning their day jobs and following after this rabbi, this teacher. And then we get the teaching at Capernaum. The deliverance of the demoniac. The first miracle that we really have recorded in Mark's gospel. And we see Mark effectively telling us that Jesus came to break the power of the devil. That's what John tells us in 1 John 3.8. We then see the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And we see Mark trying to get across the point that Jesus came to strengthen the weak. In Romans 5.6 tells us that. We see Jesus healing a multitude of people. And we see that Jesus came to the whosoever. And then finally we see Jesus healing a leper. That was the impossible thing. But he came to conquer sin in the flesh, leprosy being a type of sin, as we'll look this morning. So let's jump in. Let's going to pick up just a few verses from where we finished last time. We're going to pick up from verse 16, because we, again, just see the calling of the disciples. And we read now, as he, the speaking of Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. That's what they did. And notice this. Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Now, we don't know how much Simon and Andrew had heard about the events that have been going on down in Bethbara where John had been baptizing and Jesus had stepped onto the scene. You know, the first 30 years of Jesus' life, we know very little about that time. Apart from that one instant when he was 12 years old, going up to the temple and staying there for a few days. But had Simon Peter and Andrew any knowledge of this individual before this moment? Well, we don't know. There's certainly no suggestion that they did. They were just going out, getting on with their normal daily routine. Just going out to go fishing. And Jesus just says to them, Come after me, and I will make you to become fishers of man. There's that call of Jesus. I wonder what they thought from his statement. Somehow, it it penetrated right to their hearts because we read in verse 18, and straight away, this is one of these phrases, I think 42 times Mark uses this expression. Immediately, straight away, they forsook their nets and followed him. It's easy to read this and not get the magnitude of this. This is like somebody just walking past you when you're at work one day. Or when you're busy in your routine. Maybe you're out shopping and in the supermarket or whatever, and 
Jesus just comes and says, follow me. And you just abandon everything. You leave your work on the desk, and your shopping trolley, whatever, whatever the circumstance. And you just walk away from all of that and just follow after Jesus. It's a really profound moment. Now, this statement, to be fishers of men. You see, there's two ways you can catch fish, as I'm sure you're aware. You can either use a hook and some bait. I've uh, tried that before with limited success. Or you can use a net. That's obviously a much more uh, proficient way of, uh, of doing it. You, you tend to get a much larger haul of fish. And, of course, Peter and Andrew used nets. That's the method they used. This was their livelihood. This is how they made money. This is how they paid the bills. This is how they lived. So they would typically put a net in. And it's just interesting that, that Jesus uses this type of analogy. He, he gets to right where they are, to, to the thing that matters to them in their lives, which is their fishing. And he says, come and do fishing in a different way. So we can catch something other than fish. We're going to catch men. Yeah, and I think there's a, a lesson here because the method, in a sense, that they're told to use will be the, effectively what they were doing. And I think it's, if we to engulf prospective converts with love, just like a net going around the fish to pull them in, that, that's what God has given us as the church. You know, there's, there's so many scriptures. I was going to list some, and I thought, you know, we could just spend all morning going through the New Testament, looking at scriptures where we're told. How important love is. You know, of course, 1 Corinthians 13. You know, in the midst of Paul talking about spiritual gifts and, and so on, we have this chapter on love. And Paul says, you know, the rest of it really just doesn't mean anything if we don't do what we do with love. We need to show love. I wonder what Peter and Andrew thought of that statement, you know, I'm going to make you fishers of men. They think, well, how, how are we going to catch men? Why are we catching men? What's the purpose of this? But their whole concept of fishing was catching them in a net and bringing them in. In a sense, giving them no possibility of escaping. You know, I really believe if we surround people with prayer and with love, it will be just such a net that we can bring people into the kingdom by God's grace. And we then read verse 19, and when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in a ship mending their nets. Now we we see two more of the disciples here. From what we understand, I think at least seven disciples were, were fishermen. But I think this is again interesting. Because again, we've been talking about evangelism and how we can reach the lost But there's an element of silent evangelism here. You see, because it's certain that James and John would have known Andrew and Peter. They're only just a little way up the coast. They're almost probably been able to see each other's boats from where they were. They were both fishing in the same sea, trying to catch the same fish. In a sense, they were rivals. They both had their family businesses. They were both trying to provide for their families. So Jesus comes along and Andrew and Peter are following Jesus. And James and John would have looked up and they've seen these two individuals who I'm sure they'd have known well. And Jesus approaches, say they would have seen these two, 
What impact did that have? To know that these two just abandoned their, their nets. They're now following after this man. Now, what impact does it have on the people that you know when they see you following Jesus? Because the result of this is that James and John immediately follow after Jesus as well. Of course, the challenge is how many actually see that you are following Jesus. You know, we live in a, a world and a time where we have to be sadly so politically correct. At least this is what we're told. Certain things we're not allowed to say anymore. And certainly even to try and say now that Jesus is the only way. That there is salvation in no other name. In today's society, that's, that's, that's a no-no. But... Just because society is changing, the truth has not changed. Jesus still is the only saviour for sinners. Jesus is the only way to God the Father. You know, and we need to let people see that we are following Jesus. You know, as Paul says in the beginning of the book of Romans, we need to be bold and not be ashamed of the gospel. Now, many here this morning, I know, take opportunity when people come to the door or when you're out and about or work and you share your faith. It's good and we should keep doing that. We should never be ashamed. You know, but here Peter and Andrew weren't really doing anything specifically. That There's no focus on them at this point. But no doubt James and John would have seen that they were following Jesus and how much of their decision to follow Jesus was because Andrew and Peter were there already following. I can't help but feel that some of that decision was not just the call, but it was the call and looking to see who was following. But if they're following, let's go. You know, it's interesting, there's no sense of you know, rivalry at this point. It's like, well, if they're out of the way, we can catch more fish now. And they, they, they immediately saw that there was something here worth grabbing hold of. And we told him straight away, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. I mean, we're not told Zebedee's reaction at this point. But clearly it was such that these boys just said, we're going, Dad. We're going to follow this rabbi. Now, there's another part to this, of course, as well. Because when Jewish children were growing up, up to a certain age, they would all be educated. They'd learn to read and write, typically using Torah, the first five books of Moses. But then for the really gifted children, they would then go on to the next level. And they'd be educated yet further. But then it would get to the, the best of the best. And the best of the best would then be chosen and appointed and called by a rabbi. And that rabbi would then personally mentor them. This was the best of the best that were chosen. The average Jewish boy or girl wouldn't give that, be given that opportunity. But what we have here is a rabbi coming to these people that had 
almost kind of lost out, missed out on that opportunity earlier in their lives. But now a rabbi is coming and calling them by name and saying, come, follow me. Effectively, I will mentor you. I will teach you. Again, we could lose the significance of that, just reading over these things quickly. But this was a really big deal, to have a rabbi come and to say, come and follow me. Effectively, Jesus was saying, come and be my disciples. I will teach you. And they're wise enough to immediately jump at this opportunity. And they, this group now, went into Capernaum, the house of Nahum. This is a place is named. And another straightaway. So pretty much they get there. It's the Sabbath. We told on the Sabbath day, he entered into the synagogue and taught. Now just the context here, because to have a Jewish synagogue, you need to have at least 12 males, Jewish males. But that would then be enough. And, and typically you'd have visiting teachers that would pass through, visiting rabbis, and they would come and they would share in your synagogue and so on. You know, there's no suggestion that this was a large group of people. It may have been a gathering just like we have here this morning. Not a huge number, but people that had gone there wanting to learn, wanting to know. Maybe some of them were just into their religion. A lot of people that go to church go because they think somehow that makes them better. We'll see an example of that in a moment. But we're told that he went into the synagogue on this Sabbath day and he taught. They recognize that he's a, a rabbi, clearly very learned. And he's given this opportunity as a visiting individual to their, their area to come to teach. And in verse 22 we're told, and they were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. I think this is quite interesting. Not thus says the Lord, but as Jesus did throughout his ministry, it's verily, verily, I say unto you. You know, a, a lot of people speaking in these situations, and we have it today with throughout the church, people speak saying what people want to hear, playing it safe. You know, very often it's, it's kind of speaking to those itching ears and letting them hear what they want to hear about. You're a good person, go for it. You can do the things you want to do if you set your mind on it. Sadly, so much of that teaching comes out from the pulpit these days. But Jesus comes and speaks with authority. He doesn't just say the right thing. He's saying the truth. And of course, the truth divides. Truth challenges people. And I love what, what we have here from Mark, because Mark, again, just to get the context, he's so enthusiastic to get across here the things he wants to share. These are all little snapshots he's giving us. He's saying, look, folks, this is what happened, that Jesus went, and they were amazed the way he spoke. This is Jesus that Mark wants to tell you about. Now, there isn't any other person in history who's had the right to speak the way that Jesus speaks. Kind of, people often say about, you know, oh, you think you know everything. Well, in Jesus' case, yeah, he, he did. He was the creator. He was God manifest in the flesh. What an incredible situation. And Mark wants to get this across, that 
Jesus wasn't just some ordinary teacher. They were absolutely amazed. But then we're told in verse 23, and there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out. Now, I just find this interesting because it's not just that there's an individual who happens to walk past outside. We're told that there was in their synagogue. The implication was he'd been in there for some time, part of this group, with an unclean spirit. How long had he been sat there? How many weeks had he been going along unchallenged? It made me just think of how many churches we have where people can go week after week and they never hear the gospel. They never hear the truth. They're never challenged about sin, about righteousness, about holiness. But suddenly this Sabbath day, Jesus is there. And Jesus is speaking with authority. And this individual that has this unclean spirit cannot be silent. The spirit within this man, this unclean spirit, cries out. The world doesn't like the truth. But Satan, even less. And this unclean spirit says, let us, plural, alone. What have we to do with thee? You know, we were quite happy coming to church each week. Why are we talking about Jesus? That's kind of the context here. Let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? Interesting. To have understanding of God's plan. That there will come a day that Jesus really will destroy all the unfruitful works of darkness. And then they make this statement. I know thee, who thou art, the Holy One of God. This demonic spirit, these demonic spirits within this individual declare that he is God in the flesh. It's interesting that this is the first miracle that Mark records, and I can't help again but feeling that Mark was really excited to just get across the fact that not only Jesus went into a synagogue and he spoke with authority, just completely showing up all these other individuals that typically would get up and take the floor. But in doing this, he actually demonstrates that he has the power to destroy the work of the devil. I can't help but think that as Mark was recording this, this good news that he's sharing with you, he wants you to understand this is the first miracle he records. And it's like saying, folks, Jesus really is more powerful than all the power of the enemy. What great confidence we can have in Jesus. Mark is gradually adding now to our understanding of who Jesus is. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out of him. Just to clarify that word, torn, effectively, if you look at the, the Greek here, it's, the implication is that it caused him to convulse. So it didn't do him any physical damage that was permanent. It caused him to convulse, went into some kind of fit as this spirit came out, or these spirits came out of him. We're told, and they were all amazed. 
I mean, I wonder if they were amazed because they hadn't realized that this individual was there in their synagogue every week, seemingly. Certainly they're amazed because Jesus just steps in and deals with this in power. Insomuch that they questioned among themselves, saying, What thing is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority commanded he even the unclean spirits, and they do obey him. You know, if Jesus can deal with a problem like this, Jesus can deal with every single problem that you face. And immediately his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. The news just starts spreading. This really was an incredible thing. And it's just another one of those underlying facts here that you can't make up the gospel because there's these kind of statements that everybody knew about it. You know, this isn't just something that was contrived by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We've used that example already. There's no way they could have just put this together. Because everybody heard about these things. It became common knowledge what was going on. Now, before we move on, I just want to just talk quickly about these unclean spirits. Because Mark's going to refer to unclean spirits on at least six specific occasions in this good news that he's presenting to us. The references are there if you want to look at them up. But no attempt is made by Mark to explain what or who they are. It's simply left, it's just assumed that the reader is going to understand what he's referring to. This was a, a fairly common thing in Israel at this time. What do we know about them? Well, they are a real phenomenon. They could indwell individuals and more than one unclean spirit could indwell an individual. We find one individual later on that had 2,000 spirits dwelling within him. They have the power to direct and control that individual using his voice and actions and everything. They exhibit self-will, independent thoughts, malevolent intent, and the ability to know certain future events. Certainly declaring that they knew that there was a day coming that they would be destroyed, but also that Jesus was God. They knew those things without even being told. Interestingly, they do not have a body. And unlike angels, they cannot simply appear in human form. You know, there's no specific record of their origin given to us in Scripture. So we have to ask the question, where did they come from? Did God create them? We know that God created the angels. We know from Revelation that a third of those angels rebelled against God and followed after Satan. Why? Well, once again, because when God created this earth, the assumption was, certainly on Satan's part, that God was creating this wonderful world for him. He was the anointed cherub, and this was going to be given over to him. And suddenly, on day six, God creates man and says, there you go, this is for man. Man was created in God's image. No angel was. And in Isaiah chapter 14, Satan, we have recorded there that he said, I want to be like God. I will be like God. He wasn't trying to say, I will be God, like God. 
like Adam was, made in the image and likeness of God. That's what Satan wanted. And Satan, of course, then leads Adam and Eve into sin and claiming for himself title to this earth. It was a big deal because clearly a third of the angels sided with Satan at this point. Not understanding God's wonderful plan of redemption. Wonderful plan to have a people that would be his. He would be their God throughout eternity. So that's the angels, but what about these unclean spirits or demons? Well, we have to go back to Genesis 6. Genesis 6 tells us there of this occasion where certain angels, fallen angels, left their abode, left their estate. They came and they took human wives and they produced offspring. Now, those offspring of angels and humans weren't fully angel, they weren't fully human. But certainly they have offspring. And we're told that they are those of whom the giants came. And it causes a problem throughout the whole of the Old Testament. It's interesting that you understand that this was a, a satanic attempt to try and stop the line coming down to the Messiah. This was Satan trying to stop the plan of salvation. Now, that was prior to the flood. It was the reason that God sent the flood, because of his mercy to try and stop this problem. Noah and his family are the only ones who were saved through this. They're the only ones who are genetically pure back to Adam. After the flood, we're told the same thing happened again. And it's interesting that these beings concentrate on the land of Canaan. Why? Because that's the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. Where is it that we find this overwhelming prevalence of these beings? It's the Middle East. It's Israel. You don't find these kind of problems in Canada and North America and Australia and elsewhere around the world. And that's not to say that there aren't from time to time issues, but nothing like there was during the time of Jesus. Most Christians have probably never been in a situation where you've come, as Jesus did here and as the disciples did, as you would come face to face with a demonic spirit. Some have, no question. And not to say that they can't move around the world. But clearly, the focus was on this area. And the intention was to try and stop originally that line down to the Messiah. What happened when those beings died? When these giants died? Again, part angel, part human. Well, majority that we know drowned in the flood. And it seems that these then disembodied spirits seem to spend their time looking for a body to dwell in. They're not angels, they're not human. And that seems to be the origin of these demonic beings. You can look in a lot of uh, commentaries and you won't find that. Certainly, to my knowledge, it's the position throughout Calvary Chapel where we stand. And I think scripture is very clear in supporting this. Uh, sadly, a lot of, even a lot of the good systematic theology books you can get and so on, just totally miss it. And they'll just simply tell you the demons are just angels, fallen angels. But if you look at the details, angels and demons are very different. Let's move on. Because <clears throat> we then read, forthwith, when they were come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew. Okay, so they've gone now to Simon's house. Okay, it's actually going to find... Simon's mother-in-law is there. They've entered into the house of Simon and Andrew. They've kind of come home for these boys. 
And James and John have, have kind of tagged along. They're coming along with them. We were told, but Simon's wife's mother lay sick of a fever, and anon they tell him of her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And immediately the fever left her, and she ministered unto them. You're going to see a pattern here, because Jesus, in all of these healings, constantly seems to touch people, to take them by the hand, to raise them up. There's a lot of contact a lot of laying hands on people, as it were. Now, in the New Testament, we're told not to lay hands on people hastily. Because when you lay hands on people, the whole idea of laying hands on someone is that you are identifying with them. Go back to the Old Testament. You look at those sacrifices. The reason that the priests would have to lay their hands on the animal that they were about to slaughter was by way of identification that this animal was being sacrificed in their place. They laid their hands on those animals. When the disciples sent Paul and so on out on their missionary trips, they would lay their hands on them. Why? They're identifying themselves with them. They're acknowledging that these individuals, Paul and so on, will be going to minister, to preach the gospel on their behalf. It was for the whole church. And they would be sending them out. But Jesus repeatedly lays his hands on people. As I said, the New Testament warns us we shouldn't lay hands on people hastily because you don't want to be a partaker. You don't want to be identified with somebody unless you know where they are. That's why that warning's there for us. But Jesus was identifying himself with every form of disease, every form of sickness because he was going to take that upon himself for us. Again, I was told again that immediately the fever left her. And I love this. And she ministered unto them. You know, isn't that the appropriate response when Jesus brings healing and restoration? Then immediately we should look to see how we can serve him. And we're told that even when the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased. And them that were possessed with devils. Again, you you may have missed this as you've looked through the Gospels. There were a multitude of people in the Middle East, in Israel at this time, that were possessed with devils. We don't encounter it that often, but it goes back to what I said a moment ago. Now this is in the evening. So they've had this this day, Jesus called these disciples, been to the, the synagogue, they've gone back to Peter and Andrew's house. Peter's mother-in-law has been healed, had food. We don't know what time it is now, but it's getting later in the evening. And suddenly, they look out the window, and there's a multitude of people there. You know what it's like when there's a little ruckus outside your house, and you kind of peer through the curtains, hoping that nobody can actually see you, you know, looking, trying to work out what's going on. Do we need to be concerned about this? Do I need to call the police? Well, suddenly, there's a multitude of people. And clearly a bunch of people that you wouldn't necessarily want just camped outside your house in the evening. All these ones possessed with devils and people that are coming with various diseases. And we're told all the city was gathered together at the door. This is a big turnout. What does Jesus do? Well, verse 34, he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases 
and cast out many devils. I suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. We just see this lovely, gracious, compassionate side of Jesus here. All these people here with all these problems. Now, ultimately, we know that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Speaking of, of course, his death on the cross. He didn't come specifically just to solve these kind of problems. And yet he doesn't leave these individuals. It's again the good news that Mark is painting for us. This is Jesus, the promised one, has come. Hundreds have witnessed God speaking at the baptism with John. Jesus has his authority like no other man. He's got power over demons. He can heal the sick. This is the one that Mark is trying to present to you. You know, you should get to the end of chapter 1 of Mark and be just so overwhelmed with Jesus Christ. If you're not, go back and reread it. Look at the person that Mark is presenting to you. This is God stepping into humanity. You know, people say, oh, if there's a God, why doesn't he, and fill in the blank, do this or do that. Or, you know, This is God, and this is what he does do. He steps into our world full of problems, full of evil, full of sickness. And he immediately starts showing who he is, his graciousness, his compassion. But ultimately, the purpose of all of this will be the miracles and everything else are simply witnesses so that we would believe in him and realize that he is the one, that his death on the cross is sufficient for all of our sin. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. He had a late night. The whole city's been out. He's been out praying with people and healing people and laying hands on them and delivering these people that are oppressed and filled with these demons and so on. And it doesn't go, oh, late night. I don't have a lay in the morning, I think. No, no, no. The next morning, gets up early. We thought a great while before they, before the sun was up. He went out, found a place that could be alone, and he prayed. You know, this is Jesus. This is God in the flesh. And yet here we see the relationship that he has with his father. Yet we, we can't do anything without God enabling us, strengthening us. We're told without him we can do nothing. How many of us get up a great while before day, find that solitary place, pray? I was just listening to uh, a commentary this or yesterday actually by, by Chuck Misler, and I'm sure many of you are aware that this week Chuck went home to glory. He's run a great race. There's been a blessing to so many people around the world. And he was talking about the fact that he, and I didn't, you know, Chuck very seldom spoke about these kind of things, but he was saying that he used to get up early. And he said, you know, what he didn't get done between five and eight in the morning, he wouldn't get done all day. Meaning that that time he spent with the Lord, that time he spent in study and in prayer 
That's where everything happened. You know, all the, the rest of the day was really dictated to by those first few hours, that time with the Lord. I've heard many other Christian speakers and teachers and so on speak about those early hours of the day and how important they are. You know, the busier you get, the more you need to spend that time with God. You know, a challenge to us this morning, if Jesus needed to pray, well, how much more do we need to pray? Now, the truth is, a lot of us really struggle in this area. It's not something that we've got sorted. And it's hard because the devil will throw 101 things in our direction. And so will the world. And so will the flesh. Those three things we battle with, the world, the flesh, the devil. There's always going to be distractions. There's always be a reason why you can't or you feel you can't put this time aside for prayer. But how much more effective would your life, your walk, your ministry be? You know, we're talking earlier about people seeing Jesus in you. People seeing you following Jesus. You know, if we just spent more time as individuals in prayer, what would the Lord do through this fellowship? And this is a challenge to all of us, me included. We need to be praying more. You know, if, if you're short of something to pray, then get a copy of that list of those unsaved loved ones that we've got. And just pray for them every morning. Pray for your own immediate family. For those that are married, pray for your spouse. Pray for your children. Pray for each other here. And look, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all spend three hours in prayer at the start of the day? And it would be. But the most important thing is that we pray. And, and let's even just try and commit to, let's say, five minutes. If you could pray for five minutes at the start of every day this week, and the whole fellowship did that, I'm pretty convinced the next Sunday morning when we have a sharing time, there will be more to share. Just five minutes. The truth is, as you start to pray more, you find that there's more you want to pray about. The Lord will lay upon your heart the things that you should be praying for. Praying about your, your finances, praying about your work situation. Many things you should be praying for. So let me encourage you this morning, please, pray. Jesus needed to pray to maintain that relationship with his father so do we verse 36 is Simon and they that were with him followed after him so Jesus has gone out they wake up where's Jesus gone has he left and suddenly Jesus wanders back I'm not sure what time but where have you been clearly Jesus says I've been praying because we have it recorded here they, they knew that Jesus had been praying and so now, they want to follow after this man that has this real relationship with God the Father. Not something that's just reserved for the, the synagogue on the Sabbath. This was real. 
And they see that. We told Simon and they that were with him followed after him. It wasn't just that one day. There was enough that they had seen to say, we are going to stay with this man. And when they had found him, they said unto him, all men seek for thee. Obviously the stories of the night before have been spreading around. And he said unto them, let us go into the next towns and that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. I mean, this was just an incredible period of time. And Mark, just overflowing to share this with you, to help you grasp what's going on here. And then we, and there came a leper to him. Mark throws this in. Because this is that disease from which you couldn't be cured at that time. Beseeching him, this leper begs him, kneels down to him, saying unto him, If that will thou can make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him. The thing you never did with a leper. Said unto him, I will be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. And he straightly charged him and forthwith sent him away. Jesus said to him, don't say anything to anybody, but go to the priests Matthew gives us this record. And offer to them the offering that's prescribed by the law. You know, when this individual goes to the priests, they have to go back and look it up because they'd never done this. Never had there been a leper cleanse. Although there was provision made in the law, if a leper is cleansed, this is what you shall do, it had never happened. Certainly not in Israel. We have Naaman who was cleansed, but he was a Syrian. There's no record of a leper being cleansed in Israel. And this individual goes eventually to the priest, but he, he doesn't do what Jesus said because he just publishes the whole thing, tells everybody about it. Can't stop talking about Jesus. And saith unto him, See, thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But he went out and began to publish it much and to blaze abroad. What a lovely expression. The matter. Insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in desert places. And they came to him every quarter. So I want to close by just talking a little bit about leprosy and seeing it as it is in Scripture, as a type of sin. Leprosy as a disease is deeper than the skin itself. It spreads, so does sin. It defiles and isolates. It renders things only fit for the fire, and so does sin. Lepers were supposed to keep their distance. God had made it abundantly clear that he's not willing that sinners perish, but that all men, all sinners, be saved. To read to you these, these quotes... Probably it would start with his beginning to feel a little tired. For no reason he would have a feeling of fatigue. Then his joints would begin to get sore. One day he would notice little white spots all over his skin. I'm sorry to share this just before your Sunday lunch, but this is just illustrates the point. One day he would notice little white spots all over his skin, and later those white spots would begin to harden into nodules. And they would turn from white to pink to brown and then become scaly. Soon the nodules would spread all over his body. The appearance of his face would change until he began to resemble a lion. The nodules would ulcerate all over his body, producing a foul odor. They would cover 
his vocal cords so that when he breathed there would be a wheezing sound. When he talked his voice would be so would be raspy. His eyebrows would fall out, his hair would turn white. Inch by inch this man's body would begin to rot. As he walked he would leave putrid spots where the pus oozed out of his feet. His fingers and his toes would begin to fall off. Leprosy attacks the nervous system in such a way that a person loses all sensation of pain. Again, think of this in regard to sin. A man in the grips of leprosy might accidentally put his hand in the fire and feel no pain. Isn't that what sin does to us? It sears our conscience. He would burn himself severely. He would step on a thorn in the path and feel nothing. And as the thorn ran through his foot, a leper was walking was walking death that lasted an average of nine years until its victim finally collapsed. Not only would a person suffer unbelievable horror physically, but there was also social re- rejection. When it was determined that a man had leprosy, he would be banished from the village. He was no longer allowed to have communion with other people. He had to leave family, friends, and tear his garments so people would recognize he was a leper. Sadly, it's different today. And actually, everybody welcomes sinners. It's the accepted norm. They don't realize how horrible this disease is, this disease of sin. Over his upper lip, he had to wear a cloth so that he would, wouldn't spread contamination. Every time he saw people coming, the leper was required to cry, unclean. It would warn them that the leper was nearby. They would sometimes pick up stones to throw at him. And this is from this book, Exploring the Gospels by Jerry Vine. He concludes, it says, No disease in the Bible pictures the devastating results of sin in a life, as does the disease of leprosy. That's what this disease does. That's what sin does. This is what Jesus came to deliver us from. And this morning again, we celebrate the communion as a reminder that we have been cleansed, healed from this disease of sin that would have totally and utterly destroyed us. And now we're called to follow him and let people see that we're his disciples. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time this morning just to be reminded Lord, of these things, Lord, of seeing these disciples called and just abandoning all and following after you. Father, give us that hunger, that desire for you. Lord, help us to see what they saw. Help us, Lord, to have the excitement that Mark has in recording these things for us, that you are this incredible God, that you are God in the flesh, Lord Jesus. You really are the one who has come to deliver your people from sin. Lord, stir our hearts. Wake us up, we pray. And Father, help us, by your grace, to pray. Help us to pray like we've never prayed before. Lord, if we've only managed a minute in the morning in prayer, let us make it two. If we've managed five minutes in prayer, let us make it ten. If we've managed half an hour, let's make it an hour. Lord, let us pray more that we would spend time with you, fellowshipping with you, but Lord, also that your will would be done through your people. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week.